Thank you, Mark. Well, I want to start off with one particular verse that I think most people would not debate or argue with. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. The words of God, you shall not murder. As I mentioned earlier, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. But I want to emphasize the first word in that phrase, sanctity. Sanctity of human life. What exactly does that mean? Well, it means that we as Christians believe that every single human life is sacred, sacred to God and therefore sacred to us. Every human life is sacred to God, valuable to God. And again, should therefore be valuable, sacred to each and every one of us. Every human life. Now, as I already mentioned, today we are going to be focusing on uh, the topic of abortion. The question is, why? Why abortion? Put simply, abortion is a holocaust of indescribable proportions, unthinkable proportions, perpetrated, hear this, by Christians and non-Christians alike against the most vulnerable population on planet Earth, the unborn. Now, uh, this morning, Daniel Smith is going to come and share for a few minutes. He uh, is a medical doctor, which gives him a unique and significant voice on this issue. But more important than being a doctor, Daniel is a Christian. Daniel is a Christian. He's going to speak to us today on the history of abortion. And some of you, your eyes roll in the back of your heads as soon as I say history, right? Why does history matter? Well, history matters because it is the story of our collective past. We are humanity and our history matters. After Daniel comes, Tip Hudson is going to present a biblical case, uh, specifically for life, uh, when life begins, uh, and, and in that, uh, a case against abortion. Now, to be sure, there are many pragmatic, scientific, and logical reasons to stand in opposition to abortion, but as followers of Jesus, we must all plant our two feet, ground our lives and our beliefs on God's word. God's word is the only unshakable foundation upon which to build our lives and our beliefs. And then finally, I'll come back uh, and speak to you pastorally, just giving a few possible reasons, uh, a few possible responses, rather, uh, to what I think will become an obvious question throughout our time together this morning, and that is this, how should we then live? As Christians, after we hear the history of abortion and a biblical uh, response to that, how should we then 
live. So before we turn our gaze uh, to the horrific sin that is abortion, let me encourage you uh, in two ways. These are two foundational things that I want you to keep in the forefront of your minds as we make our way through the morning. One I've already said, but I want to make sure you hear it. Every human life is sacred. Every human life. The born and the unborn, the old and the young, the able and the disabled, Christian and non-Christian, pro-life and pro-choice, mom and dad, single and married, care net, staffer and planned parenthood employee, the doctor who administers the abortion, the boyfriend, the husband, or the parents who push for the abortion, and the mom, the precious mom who got one abortion or five. Every life is valuable to God. I want everybody to look at me, if you can, for just a second. I'm trying to make eye contact with 150 people. But I need you to, I want you to hear this before we dive in today. Your life matters to God, no matter what you've done. Your life matters to God, and therefore, as God's people, your life matters to us. Every human life is sacred. The second thing I want you to remember this morning may seem obvious, but we need not move beyond it, is you need to remember the gospel. Remember the gloriously good news of the gospel. I say it to you this way almost every single time that I stand before you to preach God's word, that the gospel is the good news that God alone saves sinners. And he does it by grace alone, through faith alone, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus alone. More significantly, Jesus put it this way in John 3, 16. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. As we look at abortion today, whether your mind leads you towards judgmentalism or towards self-condemnation, I implore you, remember the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as Daniel comes, help us to hear, help us to believe, and help us to respond to you as we look at this terrible and tender topic. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Pastor Bobby, for that introduction. Um, and I just want to say thank you to uh, Liberty Bible Church for um, presenting on this difficult topic on a Sunday morning. I think it's right that we as Christians talk about this issue. I became interested in uh, abortion when in 2019 my wife and I went to a theater in California and watched this movie called Unplanned. And this is something that I would definitely advocate for uh, and encourage all of you to watch it if you have not watched it. 
I sat in the back of the theater after watching that, uh, and I literally sat there and wept for 10 minutes, realizing that I had not paid nearly enough attention to this issue that was right around me, very prevalent in our country, and realized that we tend to relegate this issue over to the politicians or to people that aren't involved in our lives, and we as Christians can sort of hide off in our little corners and pretend that this doesn't affect us. But at the end of that movie, I really realized that this is a significant issue that, that uh, requires and demands all of our attention. Um, as uh, Pastor Bobby said, uh, I have been tasked this morning with giving you the history of abortion in America in 15 minutes or less. Uh, the closer I've come to this, I realize that that's an impossible task. Uh, but let me give you a few highlights along the way. I want to start out with currently where we're at now, just a word of warning. There's a lot of numbers here, and it can be easy to be numb to numbers. Like, what does that really mean? So I'll try and tie that to a reality or something that's relatable to our current situation. The landmark Roe v. Wade decision that um, was decided uh, and became law in 1973 um, has led to an overall, there's some, uh, qualification on this number, I think. I found a few different ones, but has led to approximately 63 million abortions in America since 1973. It's a number that defies imagination when you consider that America has a population of over 300 million people. Um, we currently are at a rate of approximately 2,500 abortions per day in America. Another way to think about that is there's over 100 abortions happening per hour. Um, as the clock ticks away. 2020 was the first year where medication abortions... <coughs> In 2020... In 2020 was the first year that there were more medication abortions uh, than surgical abortions. In Washington state, uh, there's approximately 16,000 abortions per year. If you think about Kittitas County having approximately 45,000 residents, it's the population of Kittitas County eliminated in approximately three years. It's currently legal up to viability, which is uh, loosely defined as a, around 24 weeks. There's 46 abortion-providing clinics in the state. There's a Planned Parenthood in Ellensburg right up the street here. Uh, there's one in Wenatchee, one in Yakima. There's also Cedar River in Yakima. Three of those, fours provide, of those four clinics provide surgical abortions. My own employer in Yakima, Multicare Yakima Memorial Hospital, does first trimester DNCs in the operating rooms across the halls from where I am working. Uh, which presents a very interesting moral dilemma for me. Uh, the abortion pill is legal up to 10 weeks uh, as of 2016. Prior to that, it was legal up to seven weeks. So how to capture this beast of history? Let's back up and go to the 17th century. Uh, the, the big theme there was that they really did not have the knowledge that we do now. They literally did not know what happened inside a woman's womb as a baby was developing. About the only thing they had to go on was cessation of menses, uh, which can happen for reasons other than pregnancy, but the most common cause of, of it stopping was pregnancy. 
there's this idea of quickening, that anything prior to quickening, which quickening is loosely defined as a, as a mom feeling the baby's movements, uh, anything that happened prior to quickening, um, well, let me back up. So if, if we define quickening as the beginning of movement in the womb or the, the mom's ability to feel quickening, then the supposition was made that prior to that, the baby was not a baby yet. So anything that happened before that point was okay. And so um, there were obviously a lot of very strongly Bible-believing people that didn't believe in using abortifacients, but there was a fair subset of the population that believed it was okay to use abortifacients prior to that point of quickening, um, just to basically resume a woman's menses. In the 19th century, we started seeing some laws um, come into effect. The first law uh, was presented in Connecticut uh, after a case of an Episcop uh, Episcopal clergyman. Uh, it really riled up the public because this involved a pastor and an abortion. Um, this led to some laws in Missouri and Maryland as well. Uh, New York City passed its first law against abortion in 1829. Uh, prostitution was a huge problem in New York City, uh, and we saw the first pro-life uh, voice during that time uh, come into the history books. His name was John McDowell. He was a Yale graduate and a young pastor, and he just had a really strong sense of compassion for these women uh, who were basically resorting to abortion as a way just to get by. He published some McDowell journals, which were heavily censored and boycotted by the mainstream media of the day. Uh, but he lamented alongside the abandoned pregnant women who thought, quote, it is better for their offspring to die this early than to be born to an inheritance of shame and poverty. Um, Hugh Hodge was a physician who worked in the poorest part of Philadelphia, and he was the first one to really challenge the concept of quickening. He said, what, it may be asked, have the sensations of the mother to do with the vitality of a child? Is it not alive because the mother does not feel it? Every practitioner of obstetrics can bear witness that the child lives and moves and thrives long before the mother is conscious of its existence. He was really the first person to bring to the forefront this idea that abortion affected not one person, but two. And that is a, an extremely important point. Alexander Draper was another physician who disagreed with that. He emphasized the health and the autonomy of the mother. Um, and he basically made the point that women who wanted abortions should go to specialists like himself uh, that can give them safe abortions that would not result in their death. Um, Madame Restell, she is basically the, the first uh, illegal abortion provider uh, that worked on a large scale in New York City. Uh, her story is astounding. She used blackmail and bribes to keep police and local government silent. Um, and essentially, I mention her because she wrote the playbook for illegal abortion businesses that were able to thrive all the way up till 1973. Henry Wright was a pastor turned philander and abortion supporter. He introduced the concept of the unwanted or the unwelcome child in a book that he wrote. Other things that were happening late in the 19th century, spiritism was very common. So this was the concept that each person is basically his or her own God, his or her own God, and which led quickly to this concept of bodily autonomy, my body, my choice. That should sound familiar. The Civil War happened in the late 1800s. 
uh, with all its associated post-Civil War civil rights issues. Uh, the Memphis Massacre happened in 1866, and I mention this just because uh, it led to the, um, con the, the 14th Constitutional Amendment, which gave personhood to post-Civil War freedmen. Now, if this issue hadn't been happening at the time, it is likely that the personhood of the unborn baby would have been defined as such in the Constitution, but the civil rights issues were much more uh, prominent at the time and simply did not make it to federal attention and the federal level. Uh, aside from that, babies had protection on the state level. By the end of 1868, 30 out of 37 states had pro-life statutes. Going into the 20th century, we start with a very famous lady by the name of Margaret Sanger. Um, she was born in the late 19th century, but uh, became active in the 20th century. Uh, she's known for a lot of things. Uh, one of the things she's known for is the mother of abortion. She's the one who coined the term birth control, um, she, which birth control up to that point was mostly still illegal. Um, she challenged a Comstock law that had went into effect in the late 19th century. In 1936, she successfully challenged this law and basically gave a legal right to women to pursue birth control within the purview of the doctor-patient relationship. She founded the organizations that ultimately became Planned Parenthood Federation of America, and she was a strong proponent of eugenics and birth control as a means to control what she would describe as less desirable elements of our society. I would be remiss in leaving uh, the topic of birth control out of the conversation this morning. Regardless of what you think about it, there's a strong connection between birth control and abortion, and Sanger promoted this very strongly. The Anglican Church approved birth control in 1930, when there is, quote, a morally sound reason for avoiding complete abstinence, whatever that means. The Protestant Church uh, approved birth control in 1931, um, which, why well, I, I say Protestant Church, it was really the Churches of Christ, which had about 21 million members at that time. The Catholic Church was really the main holdout and stood, stood the line when it came to birth control, and as far as I know, still have not uh, approved it as legitimate. Knowledge of fetal anatomy was really increasing during this time. If you have time, there is a really cool birth series that were, was presented at the 1939 to 40 uh, World Fair. Um, beautiful, beautiful images. The April 1965 Life magazine had an 18-week-old fetus swimming in an amniotic sac on the front cover. Um, and then ultrasound was becoming much more common as well. This all resulted in an increased awareness of the humanity of the unborn baby. Lawrence Later is a uh, person that should be mentioned. He's known as the father of abortion rights. There was a famous case, Griswold v. Connecticut, that basically played off of Margaret Sanger's reveal of the Comstock Law in 1936 that granted constitutional right to birth control as an issue of marital privacy. No longer was it between a woman and her doctor. It was basically a woman was allowed to uh, use it wherever and whenever she pleased. Um, and Lawrence later used this as a way to transform the abortion debate from a crime story into a civil rights issue connected with liberty 
i.e. the women were allowed to have liberty when they choose birth control, they should be allowed to have liberty when it comes to choosing whether or not to have an abortion. This all paved the way for the landmark, uh, well-known uh, Supreme Court decision was, that was decided in uh, 1973 and went into law on January 22nd, 1973. This was brought to the Supreme Court by two Texas <coughs> lawyers. Uh, it involved Norma McCorby, also known as Jane Roe, and Henry Wade, who was a local district attorney. They together alleged that the Texas abortion laws at the time were unconstitutional. It's interesting when you consider how abortion is marketed as a woman's issue in our time. This Supreme Court decision was an all-male Supreme Court, and it was decided seven to two um, that, <coughs> well, I'll just read this. The court held that a woman's right to an abortion was implicit in the right to privacy protected by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. The majority opinion was written by Harry Blackman. This led to a constitutional protection of abortion for the next 49 years in our country and a subsequent 60 plus million abortions. There was a lot of response to this. The pro-life movement grew strongly in response to this. One of the things that happened is the reason that I am up here speaking today and that Tip Hudson and Pastor Bobby will be speaking is that Ronald Reagan proclaimed the National Sanctity of Human Life Day on January 14th, 1988. He said, I proclaim Sunday, January 17th, 1988 as National Sanctity of Human Life Day I call upon the citizens of this blessed land to gather on that day in their homes and places of worship to give thanks for the gift of life they enjoy and to reaffirm their commitment to the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of every human life. It is now celebrated on the Sunday that's the closest to January 22nd. A lot of things happened in the post-Roe era. There was a massive proliferation of pregnancy centers. I wish I had time to go into that story. There was a strong growth of the pro-life movement and different attempts uh, at combating abortion, some of them violent. Uh, this led to the FACE Act of 1994. There was also a growing compassion movement um, led by Catholics and Protestants alike. Basically, this idea that Abortion-prone women don't need our judgment, they need our help. Uh, there's a very famous case, um, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, um, that was decided June 29, 1992. This case was brought by the pro-life movement in an attempt to overthrow Roe. Uh, it unfortunately resulted in an opposite decision. Anthony Kennedy wrote the majority of opinion, and I'll let these words speak for themselves as to the logic that went behind uh, upholding Roe. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That sounds very much like that late 19th century spiritism. Um, in the 21st century, a lot happened. There's just so much here. I could have talked about just the 21st century for more than an hour. Um, but the big thing that happened um, after, the, um, uh, after the Casey decision in 1992 uh, is when Roe was upheld, 
there was a big proliferation of chemical abortions in the 2000s. Uh, except this time they were much more sophisticated than pennyroyal and tansy, back in that which were two uh, common substances used as abortifacients back in colonial America. And this time they were safe for women, just not for the baby. The FDA approved RU486 in 2000, also known as mifepristone. You may know that medication as the morning after pill. Um, and it's also the first drug in the two-drug regimen used to... Um, used for uh, medication abortions currently, led to lots of problems for women, lots of documented deaths, tragedies, sepsis, ectopic pregnancies. Most of those stories were quickly uh, swept under the rug, ignored by the media as the pro-abortion agenda advanced. Uh, in 2016, the FDA stopped requiring abortion facilities to report mifepristone complications. One must ask why. In 2020, at the FDA removed all requirements for in-person visits to get the abortion pill. The abortion pill. This led. This basically opened the floodgates to mail-order abortions, um, and this is a very common thing. We even seeing it in the see it in the post-Roe America, places like Texas, where abortion is completely illegal. Women can abort can order the abortion medication regimen from places like Europe through aid access and have it shipped directly to their door. Um, in 2021, there were many court challenges along the way to the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, but all of them ultimately would make it through the legislative process and, and then stall out and die in the courts. In May 19th of 2021, the Texas Heart Bill, Heartbeat Bill went into law the, the difference here in this law was that it was enforced by private citizens through civil lawsuits and not by public entities. So it made it almost impossible for entities like Planned Parenthood to litigate. This was the first significant abortion ban since Roe v. Wade to survive court challenges. Trump became our president in 2016. He nominated three conservative Supreme Court justices, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, this was the first conservative Supreme Court majority in a long time. Um, this was the perfect time for the pro-life movement to bring the Roe v. Wade question back to the court. Uh, Jameson Taylor with the Alliance for Defending Freedom um, brought a case to the Supreme Court known as the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The original attempt of this case was not actually to overturn Roe. It was simply a bit of a challenge to see if the Supreme Court and if the feds would allow the states to legislate pre-viability abortions. Um, they had passed a 20-week ban in 2014 without legal challenge. The next step was 15 weeks. The suggestion of overturning Roe v. Wade uh, came from an attorney general, the Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch in July of 21. He suggested in very strong wording that um, the court should overturn Roe v. Wade, which it ultimately did. This was decided on June 24th, 2022, uh, a little over a month after a draft opinion was released or leaked through Politico. Um, the uh, majority ruled in a six to three fashion to return the matter to the states, and I'll read from the majority opinion. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. 
Rowan Casey arrogated, that is, to take her claim for oneself without right, that authority. We now overrule those decisions and return that authority to the people and their elected representatives. The fallout of a post-Roe world uh, has been very interesting to watch. Um, 13 states um, had trigger laws that went into effect as soon as Roe was overruled. Um, abortion is now illegal from conception in 15 states and seven states have no limits on abortion whatsoever. The remainder of our states are sprinkled in between those two extremes. Um, overall, the overturn of Roe was a big pro-life win, right? It was the win of 50 years. A lot of work had went into this. And so there was a lot of excitement over this, but the interesting thing is that since then, the pro-life movement has had a net loss. And there's an interesting phenomenon that I really wanted to spend time on, but just didn't have the time to. I'll just say this, is that it is true that law is general, or that, that, um, Laws that are in effect are generally downstream from culture, meaning that culture changes first and then the laws adapt. But the inverse is also true. The law is a teacher. And we've really seen that with Roe being in place for almost 50 years in our country. Many people just assume abortion's fine because, well, it's legal. Um, and so we're really seeing that be borne out. Voters in Kansas and Kentucky declined to protect life in their constitutions post-Roe. California, Michigan, Vermont voted to enshrine a right to abortion into the state's constitution. Illinois, Massachusetts, and Vermont all expanded access to medication abortion. And New York passed a shield law, which basically stops law enforcement from pro-abortion states from cooperating with law, enforcement's law enforcement in a pro-life state. That was a big dumb. Thank you for listening to all that. It was a lot of information. I had to trim this and trim this and trim this, and it was very difficult to know what to say and what not to say. The goal today was not to be comprehensive, but rather to give you little highlights along the way. And what I really would love is that each of you listen to these little highlights, become intrigued by it, and go and read about it on your own. I think one of the best ways to combat abortion is to, is to educate both yourselves and your children. What are the key takeaways? The big thing, by the way, I should have mentioned earlier, uh, most, I read this book, which is why I'm up here talking. Pastor Brainine heard that I had read this book and thought maybe I would like to present on it. It's written by Marvin Alasky and Leah Savis. It's called The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History. Very interesting. Very fascinating. I read it once, and then I read it again in preparation for this talk. And the first big takeaway after reading it the second time was that there's literally not a single happy story in this entire book. And that is a big tell in and of itself. If somebody were to read this book or read any book about any given topic and you come away with the feeling like you just want to go take a shower, it's very probable and likely that that thing in and of itself is fundamentally wrong. Um, number two, human sexuality has to be governed. And thankfully, we have been given the Bible as our roadmap for this. If we're tempted to pull the brakes off of human sexual expression and kind of do whatever we want whenever we want to, we're asking for trouble. And I think abortion is a classic 
story of humanity attempting that. Number three, I really wanted to spend more time on this, but I'll just say briefly, nobody benefits from abortion. There are some short-term winners, but the real people who lose in this equation are women and babies. Finally and lastly, I just want to say, we are people of hope. It's easy to hang your head and feel like your position on abortion is maybe not popular, it's not mainstream, it's not glamorous, um, but there is nothing easier to defend than the, the right to life of a preborn infant. Truth, science, reason, religion, common law, and God are all on our side. I'll just leave you with this quote from Martin Luther King. The arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. What I infer from that, it can feel like evil will overcome and evil will win, but we serve a great God who we know will ultimately overcome all of this, including abortion. I now invite Tip Hudson up to give us a biblical perspective. How's my sound? A little closer? We're all right? Yeah, I will echo Daniel's comments that it's not possible to be comprehensive about this in uh, 10 to 15 minutes. And so I want to highlight a couple of things that I think are limiting factors in our understanding. Uh, Dan Daggett, who is a non-Christian writing about the role of humans in nature, said in a book uh, titled Gardeners of Eden, scientists working to identify the most elemental unit of matter were discovering smaller and smaller particles until they suddenly came to the point where there were no particles. In fact, there were no things. There were only relationships. We live in a world of relationships, not things." End quote. He wrote that in 2005, and the dilemma has only gotten worse since then. This dilemma in the world of quantum physics is that there appears to be no substance to matter. You'll remember from sixth grade science that uh, matter is anything that has mass and takes up space. We say that matter is made up of atoms, and they're supposed to supply the mass. But an atom is made up of very small particles in motion, and it's mostly empty space. Uh, the problem now is that the atom is also made up of very small particles in motion, and they're also empty space. The protons, neutrons, and electrons, they're all made up of nearly infinitesimally small particles, and now we're not quite sure where mass comes from, except that energy evidently has mass, because that's all there is. Uh, if there are any physicists here who feel like I'm mischaracterizing this, I would love to talk about it. I'm mostly quoting physicists here. Uh, this is not touchy-feely neo-spirituality or philosophy. It's the state of the science regarding the nature of everything in the universe. There's almost nothing but energy, and we don't know what holds it together. In fact, scientists are searching for what's being called the God particle by building multi-billion dollar super colliders under the mountains in Europe. This is relevant to the question, what does the Bible say about abortion? Uh, addressing abortion requires answering questions like, what is life? That's not an easy answer. When does life begin? Uh, that's not so easy either. 
Who has the right to end human life once life has been granted, assuming granting is the right word? That might be a little more clear. What is a preborn human? Does he or she have rights? And according to whom? Well, I'm not really a preacher. I'm more of a thinker and a writer, and that's why we have a preacher who's beginning and ending this morning's teaching. Uh, but I, I want to point you towards some scriptures that I think are sufficient answers to at least the questions of what is life and when does life begin? Because I think, as I said before, I think these are the limiting factors in our thinking about abortion, both inside and, and outside of the church. Those answers may only be satisfactory, though, if, if you share certain assumptions with me. The first assumption is that the Bible is accurate and is sufficient revelation about what is true. And I mean big picture true, morally true. It may not be comprehensive in that it's not a treatise on quantum physics, for example. And we have to be careful in interpreting the Bible. Nevertheless, the Holy Scriptures that we have are what God has determined are enough for us to know. And what we learn about physics from scientific methods will be compatible with God's Word because He's the author of the physical laws. It also means that God, God's moral commands are applicable to everyone on earth and not just Christians and that we reject them to our peril. Uh, the second assumption is that uh, I assume that you as somebody who is by definition one who bears God's image care about other image bearers. Uh, it's clear that this, this divine stamp confers a conscience, even in unbelievers, that has at least the second commandment baked in to love your neighbor. God's concern for all human life is evident throughout the Old and New Testaments, and that concern was countercultural at the time of Moses, and it's countercultural to the way of the world now. Uh, God calls us to share this concern uh, that all human life is sacred, not trivial, not disposable. So we get back to the question of what is life. Uh, there are a few fundamental things that the Bible says about the nature of life. And I think if there was a, a thesis statement here, this would be it. The scriptures clearly show that the triune God is responsible for creation of everything that is, for the generation of life, for regeneration, and for resurrection. God is, is responsible for creating and sustaining all that is, from dust to living dust, to second birth, to eternal life in an incorruptible body. So a few definitions. I'm saying that creation is God bringing everything into being from nothing and sustaining it. Generation, or what older theologians called quickening, is the spirit breathing life into a creature, and in the case of humans, imparting a soul. Regeneration is the Holy Spirit animating a soul, a human spirit that otherwise is dead in sin, and granting a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone in this so-called second birth. Resurrection is the spirit breathing life into the bones of one physically dead and creating a permanent body at the appointed future time. These are my words, not, a formal, not formal theological definitions. So let's look at creation first, and now we come back to quantum physics. 
Uh, God's word says that the universe and everything in it exists because he wills it. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 is probably my favorite passage in the Bible, although I'm resistant to saying that I have a favorite, uh, but I do. It's so familiar that we gloss over it. We gloss over the gravity, uh, pun intended, we're talking about quantum physics. We gloss over the gravity of this statement. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It appears that that's not just poetic imagery. Everything, physically, metaphysically, logically, spiritually, everything is downstream from this truth. Pagan philosophers concluded a long time ago that there must be some prime mover, it was called, some being in whom is the essence of being, otherwise there wouldn't be anything. The Bible declares that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that prime mover. He even names himself, I am that I am. Matter continues to exist because the uncreated one, the I am, wills it and continues to will it. Then Paul says in Colossians 1, By him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and, you know the next phrase, in him all things hold together. I really think this is rubber meets the road theology. If there were a real God, this is what you would expect real omnipotence to look like. And why does this matter for a discussion about abortion? Because living things are a special kind of matter. We've established, I think, that matter exists because God wills it. And this second stage uh, is, is probably the main point here. Life begins only because the Holy Spirit animates matter. Here again, secular science admits this to be a great mystery. It's not exactly clear what makes a living thing start living and keep living and stop living. It's a great mystery, and the scriptures don't let us get away from it. Uh, we, this is what we call quickening. Uh, so what does the Bible say about quickening or the granting of life, the beginning of life? Uh, in Genesis 2, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Later in Genesis 7, uh, speaking to the destruction of everything that was living in the great flood, we read, Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Clearly, the breath of life is what creates things that are alive. And all life is consistently referred to as dust plus the breath of God. Uh, there's actually a lot of interesting study in the Hebrew words here, uh, but I would really be out of my league if I attempted to explain that. Uh, it's worth looking into on your own. Uh, Job declares that, that he, Job, will be alive, quote, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. He says again at 33 verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. King Solomon, who's actually speaking of great mysteries in Ecclesiastes, says, As you do not know the way the Spirit 
comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. This spirit is consistently referred to as wind or breath that creates life, that makes something from nothingness and that makes dead things alive. Uh, We just read Psalm 139 where King David famously says, You formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. It would be easy to dismiss the language about forming my inward parts as just uh, literary uh, license. But, but it, I think we can't avoid the conclusion that David's personhood was established by God and was brought to fruition in conception. Uh, we also, it's clear that Jesus took on flesh at the moment that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. So God creates matter from nothing, and he breathes life into matter to animate living things. A human embryo receives this gift of the breath of life at conception, or the embryo would not be alive, much less have a soul. There's not enough time to look at regeneration and resurrection, but I hear, just hear two important passages that tie this together, I think. Jesus uses language in speaking with Nicodemus about the second birth in John 3 that sounds an awful lot like the Old Testament passages about the work of the Holy Spirit and the breath of God. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Romans 8:11 speaks clearly to the power of the Spirit and resurrection. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So we see that human life only exists when the Spirit of God breathes life into dust. Spiritual regeneration and the resurrection of the body also only happen when God imparts life eternal and flesh incorruptible through His Spirit. Uh, We even declare this in the words of the Nicene Creed where we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. It's not granted to man to be the taker of life at any stage of life. God coming as man in Jesus dignified dust and made possible the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And this is very good news for all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes every one of us. Uh, So no one here is throwing stones. Uh, We're repeating the words of Jesus to the woman who would have been stoned, go and sin no more. He offered then and offers now living water without price. Thank you, Tip. Thank you, Daniel. How we doing? 
I want to acknowledge my friend, Stephen Martin. Uh, I don't want to pretend like that didn't happen. Um, Stephen Martin is a friend of mine and uh, got to pray with him in the lobby. Uh, and Chad, I encourage you, if you know him, follow up, hear him. Um, and as Tip just referenced, uh, our intent uh, is for you to hear the whole of this message. Um, and that includes, um, after you know the the historical and the biblical, how should we then live? Let me give you uh, four possible responses. First and foremost, uh, as I said at the beginning, we must remember the gospel. Whether you are a man in the room right now wrestling with your participation in a past abortion, or you're a woman in the room who is just holding back tears because of the abortion that you have had, I need you to remember that the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. Turn, turn. That's it. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. He, hear me, he is ready, he is willing, he is able, and he is desirous. Isn't that unfathomable? He desires to forgive you. He desires to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We have to, church, remember the gospel for ourselves and for those around us. Number two, pray. Prayer changes things. Amen? If you're going, I don't know what to do with everything that I've just seen and heard, pray. Pray for God to make abortion unthinkable in our world. Pray for God to bring hope and healing to so many of us who are hurting. Number three, be known for compassion, not for condemnation. Be known for compassion, not for condemnation. We can call sin, sin, and still not condemn. Remember Romans 8, 1, as it applies to your own life, there is therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, church family, God saved you in your sin. God saved me in my sin while we were still sinners. And his offer of salvation should fuel all of our conversations because God's offer of forgiveness is for all, is for all. Number four, be open, available, willing, and even desirous for God to use you, not only to make abortion illegal and unthinkable, but unnecessary. How? Well, on the back of my phone, there's a sticker given to me by my wife. It used to be hers, but I love it. It says, adopt and foster and mentor, and advocate, and volunteer, and pray. Few of us can or will or should do all of these, but all of us can and should and must do some of these. That's the beauty of the church. We foster, you adopt, they disciple. We all pray and proclaim the hope of the gospel. That is the church. What role is God calling you to play? And finally, let me repeat the first one. I know I'm redundant, but you gotta hear this. 
remember the gospel. We must, and I, and I chose that word carefully, we must be a church characterized by beautiful feet. You know where I'm getting that language? Romans 10, 13, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, look at me again. Consider yourselves sent, right? Paul doesn't mean me the preacher. He means us the preacher. May God grant us, make us a church with beautiful feet as we seek to end abortion. Let me close by speaking to a couple of groups of people directly. First, to the ladies in the room. At the risk of stating the obvious, I am a man. I don't know what it's like to be you. I don't. I don't know what it's like to walk in your shoes. The three people who have presented to you today are all men. Why? Quite simply, because God has called us as men to lead in the church and in our own particular homes through the teaching of God's word. But too often, we men have failed you, ladies. And for that, I am deeply, sincerely sorry. Now, men in the room, including young men, The world will tell you abortion is a women's issue. It's not. As you've heard today, it is a human issue. Men, if you have pushed a woman to get an abortion or sat quietly by as she did, you need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus. Trust and rest in his grace alone in and through the gospel. Ladies, let me speak to you one more time, including young ladies in the room. I'm seeing some of you young, precious ladies in the room. If you've had an abortion, God is inviting you to himself today. He's inviting you to turn to him, ask forgiveness, and receive his free gift of grace, washed clean in his eyes. That doesn't mean there won't be pain and consequence uh, and repercussions of choices that you'll have to work through, but he loves you. He wants to forgive you. Turn to him today. Now, I cannot imagine the courage it would take. I'm still talking to you ladies. The courage it would take to ask for help in your healing. I can't imagine the courage, but I want you to know that your elders and your pastors, we are here for you for you to come to us, not as your priest, but as your pastors. You can come to us with any sin, any time, and we will imperfectly, hopefully humbly and patiently shepherd you to our Savior, Jesus, in and through the gospel that we have talked about today. But 
If you just don't feel like you can come to a man because of that particular situation, I understand. I would encourage you then to go to the one of the many godly women, mature women of God that are leading your life groups, leading in your churches. I guarantee you that they will walk with you compassionately, patiently, tenderly, and prayerfully on the road to hope and healing found in the gospel. Finally, as I close, I want to speak to the men one more time. All the men, just as God, you remember the garden, just as God turned to the man, Adam, after the fall. I want to tell you that confession is not the end of repentance for us. It's the beginning It's the beginning of biblical manhood, but it's not the end of repentance. Confession is just the beginning. It is time for us to act like men, strong, humble, gentle men, men like Jesus. So men of all ages, I want to call on us, call on you to commit yourselves together to God and his gospel. Saturate your minds with God's word. Saturate your mind. Saturate your heart with God's word. Cling to a biblical sexual ethic. What do I mean by that? That means sex in the context of marriage, which is one man and one woman for the rest of your earthly life. I promise you, it will not disappoint you. Men, take the initiative. Take the initiative in repentance. Take the initiative in integrity. Take the initiative in grace and take the initiative in love. Church family, let me close by saying this. Abortion is sin, but God, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, God, it has been a morning, but it has been a morning that you are sovereign over. God, I pray that as we stand and sing the truths that we know from your word, God, that it would be an overflow of our heart to receive your love and glorify you. God, for the woman in the room today who is just feeling so spotlighted and hurting, God, would you just help her to feel your love and your grace and your kindness washing over her right now. Father, because in Christ, you no longer see her sin you see the righteousness of her son. God, for the man in this room who knows that he has abdicated his responsibilities, that he has walked away from a hurting woman, left her alone to fend for herself, something that should bring great shame. God, let him sit and rest in the gospel this morning. God, undeserved though it is, let him receive the grace and forgiveness found in Christ alone. God, help us respond biblically, compassionately, graciously this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.